Romans chapter 5. Let me tell you, we are going to delve into what is one of the most theologically dense passages in the Bible. It is a passage that has caused lots of questioning and consternation and lots of, of wonder and discussion and even debate. And we are not going to spend an hour and a half going through all of those debates. And all of God's people said, all right, somebody said, let's go, all right? Here's the thing. This is an important passage in the book of Romans because it comes right after he celebrated what we have in Christ. And he's going to remind them again of the depth from which we have been pulled by the grace of Jesus Christ. And I thought that I would try to get us into this passage by relating it to something that maybe some of you will, un, will, will, will grasp or, or, or maybe some of you will, will detest um, or, or some of you don't care about at all. But when I started thinking about this, for some reason I was reading and researching uh, the idea of, of a movie that came out when I was like one year old gives a picture of something that is happening here. And actually, it was a, a trilogy of movies that came out in 1977 and 1979 and then early in the 80s and has spawned um, other movies, six more movies, several more television series, animated, non-animated, regular. And, and it's centered around really two characters. And the first was this guy. Because what, what else would you use to delve into a deep theological passage in Romans than the Star Wars original trilogy? Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? I got a couple of oh no's. We're not doing that. All right, so who is this guy? What's his name? Luke Skywalker, right? Luke is where we start this great story on uh, Tatooine, the planet with two sons. And he, we build up and we learn about this guy that's kind of been raised by uh, aunt uncle. And we don't know a whole lot about him. But he's the main protagonist in the Star Wars original trilogy. And in the first movie, he has an arch enemy develop. Who's the arch enemy? Darth Vader, called by some magazines the greatest movie villain of all time. And Luke and Darth Vader have this adversarial relationship until we find out in one of the most stunning revelations in movie history, in the second movie, The Empire Strikes Back, that Darth Vader is actually what? Luke's dad, sorry to spoil a movie that's 46 years old. Sorry to, to spoil that for you. But Darth is actually Luke's dad. Leading to one of the great scenes where he says, Luke, I am your father. I've tried to get my son to put that at his ringtone for me when I call him, but I don't think that's happened yet. So here's the thing. This trilogy, the original one, the best one, has been called the tale of two Skywalkers. The first, who his Skywalker name is Anakin. The first Anakin Skywalker who was tempted by the dark side 
was lured by the dark side and gives into that temptation. And as he gives into that temptation, he becomes a merchant of death and destruction and chaos. And his son Luke, who is tempted by the dark side, is drawn by the dark side, but refuses and decides that he wants to stay faithful to the Jedi, the good way. And he's able, because of that, to reverse the curse of the first Skywalker and even, in the weird ghost way at the end, redeem the first Skywalker. George Lucas once said that the central theme of the first three movies was the redemption of the first Skywalker, Anakin, by the second Skywalker, Luke. The story of the Bible is really the story of the redemption of the first Adam by the second Adam, Jesus. That the entirety of the Bible is about the mistake, the sin, the corruption, the destruction, the death that is brought by the first Adam and how the second Adam, Jesus, the second one comes along to fulfill what the first couldn't and to restore the world back to its original place. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Alex has already read it for us, but let's read it again. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes to the grace of the one man Jesus Christ overflowed to the many? And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came judgment, resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. If by the one man's trespass death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. Praise be to God. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here is the basic understanding of this passage and we th there are lots of things we could discuss there are lots of avenues we could go down 
But, but I want to make sure that we, we keep the message that Paul is intending here, that we don't get stuck in the weeds to the point that we miss the message. And the message is simply this, is that through Adam came sin, and through sin came condemnation, and through condemnation came death. That that is what happened because of the sin of the first couple of Adam and Eve in the garden. That the sin that they committed caused condemnation that led to death. And that Jesus, on the other hand, brought grace that led to justification that leads to life. And that is the message That we, without Christ, are stuck in the sin of Adam and destruction and death and corruption and condemnation. But those of us that are in Christ Jesus have been given grace-filled justification that leads to life eternal. And so we're going to break it down just bit by bit. Let's start with this one statement that Adam brought Sin. Verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people, because all sinned. Now here's what I want to tell you that this verse teaches, and and we we are going to get a little complicated here for just a moment. This verse teaches that somehow, in some way, in some theological, metaphysical reality, that the sin of Adam is my sin. That Adam's sin is my sin. That I am responsible in some way for Adam's sin. Now, well, how, Pastor? I don't know. And that's been debated for generations. But I know what the scripture teaches. And in some way, somehow, now, now there are all kinds of theories out there. There's some that say, well, that, that literally when that happened, that nature within human beings was changed and that the sin nature of Adam has been passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation that every man, woman, and child on the earth today is is infiltrated with the disease of Adam's sin and that within us we have the results of Adam's sin in our lives. There are others that say, no, 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 that's not what's happening here. Adam was our representative. And as he is our representative, when he sinned, it was as if we sinned. Just as if we send someone as an ambassador to another country, and that ambassador to another country says, this is what America believes, whether we are agreeing with that or not, our representative is telling him that's what we believe. I say, well, that's not, that's not strong enough. Some say he's our representative in the fact that God says, because honestly, when you begin to hear that, there's something inside of you that's like, why am I getting blamed for him? Right? Any of you here, um, any of you here have more than one child? Have like, okay. Um, Just by chance, has there ever been a case when you as the parent are doling out punishment or um, trying to decipher a situation and you give punishment to both of them and one of them feels as if that is unfair because it should be more punishment to the other. Has that ever happened to anybody here? Just, okay, I'm just making sure I'm not alone, all right? Because we want what's fair in life. And, well, Adam's sin is not my sin. I wasn't there. I didn't eat the apple. I didn't do that. And yet Scripture teaches us that 
God knows that if you and I were in that situation, we would have done the exact same thing. That if you and I were there in the garden, we would have, just as Adam and Eve did, taken that fruit and eaten it. It's in our nature. It's who we are. And in the moment that Adam sinned in the garden, according to Scripture, the nature of human beings went from being able not to sin to not being able to not sin. It is within us that we are going to choose our own direction. And then you validate that on a regular basis in your own life by sinning. It really doesn't matter if Adam's sin is what is responsible for your sin. You've got enough sins of your own to make up for it. And at some point in our lives, we have all thought, well, I know better than God, or I want what I want, or we have selfish desires within us, and we make decisions knowing that they're not right, knowing that they're wrong, and yet we plow through them anyways. I was reading this week about an example from St. Augustine. 1,500 years ago that was living in a completely different time. But he tells this story, writes this story about the fact that one day he was walking home with a group of peers. They'd been out playing together, doing something, some physical activity. And they were walking home. And as they walked home, they passed somebody else's property. And there were a couple of trees that were filled with pears on this other person's property. And he said in his writing that the pears didn't even look that good. And they weren't that hungry. But something inside of him wanted to steal some pears because he knew that it was the wrong thing to do. And so he said he did. And he said, we didn't even eat them all. We threw them and discarded them on the road. And he said, I realized in that moment that at the essence of who I am, I delighted in doing wrong because my nature was filled with sin. Now, this kind of action is easily verifiable. And I asked earlier if any of your parents had more than one child. You don't have to have more than one child to verify the existence of a sin nature within a child. I never had to teach any of my children how to be selfish. I never had to instruct them in the ways of sin. It just happens. I was laughing this week a little bit when I was reading. There's a psychologist, a child psychologist, acclaimed, named Burton White. And he says this. He says, from 15 to 16 months on, that's, that's like when we talk about in the Bible when there are words that there's an action that has ongoing consequences all the way. He means from the time they're 15 or 16 months for the rest of their lives, as the self-awareness becomes more substantial, something in the nature of the child we don't fully understand will lead him to deliberately try each of these forbidden activities. Specifically to see what he can get away with and what he can't. In other words, he will begin to systematically challenge the authority of the adults he lives with. Resistance to simple requests becomes very common at this time. And I love this line. And if there is more than one child in the house, this can be a low point in the parenting experience. 
And all of God's parents said, amen, right? It can be a low point in the parenting experience, right? Adam brought sin, and it is evident with us all the time. Now, a shorter way, sin brought condemnation. Another way to say that, the scripture here in Romans chapter 5 uses condemnation, that we have been condemned because of it. Another way to think of that is brokenness, distance. It brought condemnation and brokenness with God. It brought brokenness with others, and it brought brokenness with the world and nature itself. Our kids sang at a VBS several years ago. They still sing it downstairs some, a song that simply says, Sin messed everything up. And by everything, we mean everything. It was as if when Adam chose to sin, when he and Eve took that first bite, to to mix metaphors, they opened Pandora's box that has never been put back together. There there are evidences of that all around. There's... um, My mom texted me about 9.30 or 10 o'clock on Friday night that apparently in West Tennessee they experienced a 3.3 earthquake. She's just sitting in her house and the whole house began to shake. Now, some of you don't realize, but we, we lived about 20 miles south of where Real Foot Lake is, a lake created completely by an earthquake that caused the Mississippi River to flow backwards. Earthquakes, natural disasters, affairs, disasters, divorce, murder, betrayal. There would be no datelines without sin, right? No investigations, no crime. I wear a daily reminder, actually a couple of them, on my body of the reality of sin. Because I'm an insulin-dependent diabetic, and strapped to my side is a pump that is giving myself insulin right now that if I did not have, I would not be here. And on my arm is a sensor that is continually checking my blood glucose level so that it can go back and forth. Without sin, that doesn't exist. Aging, aches, pains, broken bones... Sin messed everything up. Adam brought sin, sin brought condemnation, and then condemnation brought death. Scripture mentions all kinds of understandings of death. First of all, it literally means physical death. God says that one of the realities of sin in our world is that we would die physically. Also, spiritual death that we have been separated from God, that because of the sin in our lives, a holy God cannot have a relationship with us, that it has broken our relationship with Him. And also eternal death, because of the sin in our lives, we are without hope for eternity and will spend eternity separated from Him. And he's writing to people that were saying that the law made them better than other people. And what he says to them is, 
And the reality is, the law makes it worse because it reveals what we should be doing that we will not do. I heard it put this way this week. What if when you got the flu, you were told, all right, you've got the flu, but don't have fever and don't cough and don't sneeze and don't feel horrible and don't have aches. Like, you can't control that. It's who you are. And when we read the law of the Lord, when you read Leviticus and it's telling you all these things not to do, just the Ten Commandments, when you read them and you understand Jesus' interpretation of them, and it's not just about the physical acts, but the mental and the the, the emotional acts, that in the midst of that, that none of us can meet that standard. He says the law actually condemns us more because we realize how far we are from the Lord. And so he says... The first Adam in the garden committed sin and that sin created condemnation that created death and that is our state outside of Jesus. One decision had infinitesimally more, insanely more of an impact than we would ever imagine. One of the biggest movies of this um, of this year is a movie called um, Oppenheimer. Uh, it was a huge movie apparently because it also opened alongside Barbie and you had Barbenheimer happening. But Oppenheimer is the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer and I listened to his major biography this year. And Oppenheimer struggled with his place in developing the atomic bomb because he said he knew he was setting into motion events which he could not control. And when you think about the reality of what he did, he developed something, not that it wouldn't have been developed by now anyways, but he developed something that just this week I read about the proliferation of nuclear weapons in China that is preparing for some sort of War primarily with the other major power in the world, which would be us. Nobody had ever had a nuclear weapon, and within 10 years of the first weapon being developed, there was a, a literal arms race to see who could get the most. One decision, one action can radically change the world. And that's where we are without Jesus. But praise be to God for the second Adam. Because the first Adam brought sin and condemnation and death. But Jesus brings grace. We don't deserve it. We don't own it. earn it. We don't have any way of being able to obtain it on our own. But Scripture says how much more if sin was brought into the world by a man who gave in to his desires to do things other than God had told him, how much more will grace abound for those of us that are in Christ Jesus, God's Son, who came and lived a perfect life and restored what Adam had broken. That grace brings justification Just as if, that's been the whole story we've been talking about in the book of Romans. What we talked about last week, it's just as if I've never sinned. He looks at me and he says, you are covered in the righteousness of my son and you are saved. 
and that Jesus brings life. The word there for eternal life is used multiple times in Scripture and it means life everlasting right now and life everlasting forever. Life overflowing. He has come to give us life and give it to the fullest. To experience life day by day, growing in our understanding of who He is, knowing more and more of who He is, learning to live a life of love. And so the question that I have for you today as we finish up this section of Romans that has been all about showing us how bad we are outside of Christ and the precious gift that Christ has given us in coming for us. The question I have for you today is, are you living under the influence of the first Adam or the second Adam? First of all, I mean that to those of you here that would not call yourself believers. You don't know Jesus as your Savior, and you have lived your life knowing that you're making decisions, but you just thought you could balance that out. Scripture teaches us there is no way you can balance that out. And so you are living a life where you have not been accepted uh, by God because you have sinned. You haven't, been ex- you haven't accepted the free gift that Jesus is offering for you to be saved. And today you are ready to move from the influence and the understanding of living under the first Adam to living under Jesus. But I would also say this to us as believers. What does your life portray to the world that is out there? Would you characterize the way you interact with the world and other people in our world as being people that are living in a place where we show grace and that we live a life of justification and that we are living life to the fullest? Or do you display to the world around us judgment and criticism and condemnation and a spirit of death? Some of the most critical people I know are people that call themselves born-again Christians. Some of the most condemning people I know are people that call themselves born-again Christians. Some of the harshest people I know are people that call themselves born-again Christians. The question I would have is, if that is what describes... In fact, when the world looks at us and says who we are, the words that they often use are hypocritical, judgmental, condemning. Are we living out, believers, the calling of the second Adam of grace and mercy and encouragement and love and life? Or are we living out the call of the first Adam of sin and condemnation and death? As our life is transformed, we give thanks to God for what he has pulled us from and we demonstrate to the world what life looks like for the glory of God and the spread of His kingdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for today that You are a good and great God who even though You had every right to write us off and to let us wallow in our own sin and to Leave us in the death and destruction that we caused. Lord, we're thankful that as a good and a great God, you sent your Son to show us the way. And we pray, Lord, that you would remind us again today of the life you have for us. 
of the freedom you have for us. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that has not accepted you as their Savior, that today would be the day. They would find out the answers to the questions that they have in their heart. That they would speak to, to someone, to me or to Noah or to someone about what it means to follow Jesus. And Lord, that today they would be radically transformed from the influence of the first Adam and brought into the kingdom of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that your will would be done here as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.